attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. Today's guest on the podcast, Steve Wolf. I met up with Steve out uh, in San Diego. He has a beautiful home out there, uh, and I was able to stop by and chat with him a little bit about camp. Uh, I first met Steve while I was on the trip around the country the first time interviewing guys, and uh, we exchanged some emails. We weren't able to get together, and then he reached out to me before the reunion and said he had a an old 16-millimeter movie uh, that I might want, and I said that would be amazing. He said he would get it transferred and send it over, and when I got it from him, it was incredible. The best looking piece of f- footage I had from anything. I mean, it looked like I filmed it yesterday. The colors were vibrant. Uh, there was no damage to the film. It really was awesome. Uh, that, along with a couple of audio clips that he sent me from 1968, you can find right over there at org. Check them out, Sights and Sounds, uh, among a ton of other stuff. But those are particularly nice. So feel free to swing by the website and check it out. If you haven't checked it out since... Uh, well, I don't know how long it's been since you've checked it out, but there's probably some more stuff there than the last time you were there. We have all the Warriors now, except for, of course, 1941. And if anyone out there is the 1941, please let me know. And uh, so just swing by, see what's doing over there. Always a lot of stuff to keep you entertained. Okay, enough with the advertising. Here we go. Steve Wolf on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Steve Wolf, and I was at camp from 1960 to 1970, and then again in 72. Awesome. Uh, how did you first hear about Camp Ojibwe? Well, I have two older brothers, uh, Bob and Fred, and they went there before I did, so I was the baby of the of the Wolf clan. Gotcha. Uh, had, had your dad gone or anything like that? They were the first ones, so they started the process. Yeah, actually, my my brothers went to another camp called Camp Big Chief in Hayward, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because of the food <laughs> that wasn't good <laughs> at the other place. And the food was great at Ojibwa. And so my brother Bob went there. And I think his first year was 58 or 59, about the same year as Denny started. Ah, okay. And my other brother Fred went at the same time. And I started in 1960 at seven years old. <laughs> very nice, of course. In those days, seven years old, very acceptable. Yeah, and today, I, I doubt that you'd send your seven-year-old. No. No, as a seven-year-old, I mean, can you, can you remember that first year, like anything about it, or is it just sort of, you know, youth? Yeah, it's pretty hard to remember a lot of things going back then, but I, some of the things I remember really were like the train ride. Mm-hmm. 
mm. uh, that we were still taking a train, I think, until 1963 or 64. Okay. And the train ride was was fun, but, oh, my God, it was long, and <laughs> it was wild, and there was junk all over the place, you know, and I felt sorry for the for the porters and the people next door, but or the, the, the people had to clean. But it was funny because what happened was you'd get up to, and you may have heard this before, but you went from Chicago overnight, got there about 6 o'clock in the evening in Chicago, got to Rhinelander at about... I don't know, seven in the morning or so. And then they'd have the red truck and the green truck and pile us all in and take us to camp, which was what, about a 40 minute trip. Sure. And, and then we were there. With like 30 kids in the back of it, too. Right. And you know, your trunks and your duffels and, and, and you started. Amazing. So. Amazing. So going into camp that first time, what's the very first thing you remember about actually getting to camp? Oh, geez. When, you mean when I was seven? Well, yeah. I mean, just the thing that when you think back about your first memory of camp, what is that? You know, I would have to say just the, you know, I'll tell you what one of my first memories was. It was really, it was about swimming mm. because my brother Bob ended up being the um, the waterfront director a few years later. And he was bound and determined that I was going to pass my four peer test. So about probably two or three weeks into the season, he said, come on, we're going down to the, to the beach and you are going to pass your four peer test. And about four or five times I'm grabbing for the catwalk and he's stepping on my fingers and saying, no, you're going to make it the whole way. So uh, that's probably one of the first things I remember. Nice. Nice. A big brother doing what he should, of course. <laughs> and also I have to say, seven years old is pretty young. I mean, uh, it was tough those first years. I remember crying a lot at camp, you know, because I probably was homesick and I was young, but it didn't take too long to adjust. And once you adjusted, it was great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, we, seven is really a little too young these days, uh, but nowadays we have the prep camp program and we have father son program. So they don't come up for a full camp season. They come up and do a weekend or they right. do a weekend with their dad. So we kind of ease the campers into it these days. Well, supposedly my, my parents asked Alan Pearl to make sure that they would look out for me. But oh. I have a feeling that every parent said the same thing. <laughs> that sounds about right. Now, as far as Alan Pearl go, did you guys have a relationship with them or was it just that they ran the camp and they're who you talked to? Well, I, th I think my parents had a relationship with them. I mean, I was just too young. Right. Um, but certainly I you know, can remember them very, very clearly. And uh, they ran the camp, especially Pearl. She ran the camp with an iron fist. And at the, you know, and <laughs> there was a time, and I don't remember how old I was, but I'm going to say I was probably eight or nine years old. And Al had the paddle that he occasionally used on kids. Oh, okay. And I remember being one of those kids that <laughs> he used it on in front of the entire camp. Oh, I see. So if he was going to use it, he was going to show it to everyone that it was happening. Correct. Now, what kind of an offense would it take to get the paddle? You know, I wish I remembered, mm. but I'm sure it was being a smart aleck or sure. uh, who knows. Right. Uh, I don't remember the, why I did it I just re or why I got paddled. I just remember getting paddled, <laughs> which, of course, was better, I think, than, than when the kids were older and they were making noise at night, mm. uh, which in today's camp doesn't seem to matter because they make a lot of noise at night. But <laughs> back, in those, <laughs> back in those days, uh, you're, you know, the older campers, especially if they were making a lot of noise, they would have to run the road. And the road wasn't paved. It, it had it had gravel on it. Oh. So you were running it in your bare feet on the road. So you didn't do that very often. <laughs> it's a valuable lesson to learn. So actually, uh, talking about Alan Pearl, let's go back just a little bit. When you were 
before you went to camp, did they come over and do a, a house call? Yes. Uh, they came over, and I think, if I remember right, they had the slides and the, mm-hmm. you know, and all the great things that you're going to do at camp. And uh, I don't remember Pearl being there. I remember Al being there. Yeah. And, uh, of course, he gave the song and dance of why it was great. And, and I don't think they really had to sell very hard, to be honest with sure, you. Sure, of course. I think my parents were predisposed to say, we've heard a lot about Ojibwa. We love your food. And that was a big deal. <laughs> and I think, you know, I have to tell you, at, at the time, it probably still is, it was predominantly Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I think with a lot of the Jews, the food was really important. Sure, absolutely. So. Absolutely. They did not tell you about the tongue, probably. They <laughs> saved the tongue until you got up there. Yeah, I don't remember tongue. <laughs> anyway. Maybe it was already done by then. I've heard a lot about the tongue, how Pearl, was, Pearl insisted they serve the tongue, and they always got more of it sent back than they actually gave out. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. Uh, where did you live at that? Where did you live growing up? Yeah, I was in Lincolnwood. Lincolnwood, uh, suburb of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time... There were quite a few kids who lived in Lincolnwood and that area who went to camp. Now, you know, a, a lot of the Ojibwa people have moved further north. Yeah. And a lot more in Highland Park and Deerfield and Northbrook and that area. But back in those days, it was Lincolnwood. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when you went to camp, did you have friends at camp from your neighborhood or anything? I did. Um, matter of fact, um, one of the people who has gotten pretty well known, Mark Mursky, mm. he and I were best friends, you know, growing up. He came he came into my neighborhood around fifth grade, so what is that, about 10 years old? Sure. And it was funny because I said to him, you got to go to camp, you got to go to camp. And finally, his parents uh, relented, and he went up there, and he and I were great friends. Mike Zislavsky was another one. Mm. He lived about a block away from me. He came up. Um, so there were a few of us, but Mike, Mark, and myself were pretty good friends, not only at camp, but at home. Nice. That's always nice. And so... You get to camp, your brothers are there, uh, you're in cabin one, I assume that Cabin year. two. Cabin two is a seven-year-old, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I want to think, I don't know, Scotty Keishan, I think, was there that year, too, and I think he was six. And, and I, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was in one. Oh, you know what? This may have been when one was, was were there kids in one that you were yes. first? I was saying, because there's definitely a year where one was out of commission. Oh, no, one was there, and I believe that... Dave Matazar was there when he was six also. I, I'm not sure of that, but I think he was. Okay. So, right. And and Rick and I have been friends for forever. I mean, from camp. Uh, and a fellow whose name is uh, Mitch Lieberman, he and I became friends. And those were the Southsiders. Uh, you know, Bernie Kerman was a Southsider. Right. The Matazars were Southsiders. Um, the Liebermans were Southsiders. Unfortunately, Mitch passed away here recently. But he, but he lived here. And he lives here in San Diego, where I am now, oh, Carlsbad. Wow. Wow. So, uh, but we remained friends since we were seven years old. It's That's unbelievable. unbelievable. Uh, so, talking about that, as you go through camp, who are the guys that stick out? I mean, outside of the guys we were talking about, but like, you know, talk about lifetime friends. Talk about guys that you've kept in touch with over the years. Who are the guys that really stuck out for you in that time? Well, <laughs> a lot, some of the guys who I kept in touch with uh, are guys like Bobby Kaufman and Doug Meyer. Mm. And part of it is because... We're, well, we were always friends, but part of it is because uh, we go to Vegas together <laughs> during the March Madness. Sure. Uh, of course, Elliot, I kept in touch with all these years. Uh, he's been my accountant for a long time. And, uh, of course, my friends Mark, Mursky, and uh, the Matazars. And few- now, Rick Matazar and I lived in the south suburbs as adults together, so you know we stay friendly that way. Nice. Nice. But I moved around. I, my... my 
college degree was in journalism. And so at first I was moving all over the place until I finally settled in Chicago for about, I was there for about 17 years. And then now I've moved to the San Diego area for the last 21 years. Gotcha. Very so. nice. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what your camp day is like in your, in your, when you were during your camper years, what does the camp day look like? You mean from the start of the day to, yeah, what, well, of course, what I remember was dip or shower, <laughs> which we don't have anymore. Um, and I, and I think I've heard you ask this question before. Was I a dip guy or a shower guy? I actually like taking a dip. Okay. And, and part of it was that it was quick. We were done. Get back to the cabin and that's it. <laughs> You know, except on the really bad days. Of course, then you had wash up. Oh. You know, so there was no exercising. But I can still remember Al, you know, with the exercises. All right, you know, hop one, hop two, three, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> but uh, I still remember that. Then get back to the cabin, get ready for, for breakfast. Of course, it was served to us by the junior counselors. Mm. So it wasn't a buffet. Afterwards, you had to clean your cabin. I, I've got a great story about cleaning cabins. Absolutely. Steve Lewis was our counselor, and I think it was cabin 11, but I'm not positive. And he made cleanup really fun. Now, how do you make cleanup fun? Right. Well, he, <laughs> he took our competitive juices and put them to work. What he did was he said, we're going to have everybody assigned to a particular station. So you were laying shoes, you moved beds, you swept the floors, you cleaned the line, you did the outside, the bathrooms, whatever it was. All right. And he would time us. <laughs> now, not only would he time us, but he said, you have to get a 10. And 10, of course, was the top grade. Mm, sure. So we, you know, I may be mistaken, but I think that we got it done. The fastest time was somewhere around three or three and a half minutes. <laughs> the great part about that was that you then got to go out and play. Right. You know, because there was nothing going on between their and time. activities. Yeah. yeah. You know, of course, then you had morning activities and lunch and rest period where, you know, some people wanted to sleep. Most people didn't. Uh, then you had the afternoon activities and evening activities. And then you had lights out. Yeah. And, and canteen. Do, do you still have canteen? We do. Uh, it's a little different um, we, because now we do uh, every cabin every night gets a treat. So it's not like before where they would come and check your cabin and maybe if you were lucky on a certain night you might get milk and cookies or something like that. Now every cabin gets that every night. Well, with canteen, really, it was pretty much every night. You you got in line and got a candy, a candy of some bar. sort. Gotcha. You know, and then if you're really good at at night, sometimes you get a treat. You know, you get some leftover turkey or who knows what. Sure. Uh, were you a sports kid? I was a decent athlete. I I was one of those kids who was good in a lot of things but not great in anything. You know okay. what I mean? Sure. And it was somewhat frustrating, you know, because I, I could do, I could swim. About the only thing I couldn't do is I was not a good track person. I was not fast. But I could swim, play basketball, volleyball, softball. I could do all those things. But I was never great in anything. Gotcha. You know, as opposed to some of the athletes who were up there, you know, and I know I've heard Louis Schwartz's name mentioned a million sure. times. But he was one of the best natural athletes I have ever seen. Um, I was on his watermelon league team. I don't remember what year it was, but whenever it was. And we're in the championship game. And it's the last inning. And we're down by, I think we were down by two runs, if my memory serves me right. Okay. And here comes Louis Schwartz up to the plate, bases loaded. And I'm, and this guy could hit the ball from home plate on Campus Diamond, literally to the office, you know, or <laughs> into the water in the beach. That's amazing. They had guys playing almost on the road. 
So he gets up, he hits the ball, and he hits it over their heads, and we win. Wow. And it was, I think it was the only watermelon league, it was the only softball thing I ever won. So that was, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I, you know, I, I played in high school, I was on the basketball team, I played soccer, I played tennis, mm-hmm. uh, I even swam for one year. So I could do those things, but, you know, I always wanted to be great at one thing. Yeah, so. sure. And well, in the 60s at camp were a prime athletic time, there were a lot of good athletics during the 60s. And, and I'm surprised, truthfully, that there are a lot of kids who made it through who weren't athletic. Mm. You know, and they made it. And and sometimes I just sit back and wonder how they did. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a tough road. And if you can stick it out. These days, I would say that that process is easier. We've made camp a little more, mm, I don't know what the right word is, all-encompassing. So a kid can come there and, and if sports aren't his favorite thing in the world, but as long as he still enjoys trying at them, he can still have a great time with everything else involved with camp. Right. And not get you know, beat up on or, or, you know, well, you know, I had this, I had this conversation with Mitch Lieberman, Mm. uh, you know, before he died. And, you know, I asked him because he said to me, he said, he said, I wasn't that great of an athlete. He said, I just liked being there. Mm. And Mitch was a nice guy. And he, you know, he was, he was someone who everybody got along with. And he was also the youngest of three brothers, Ah. Dean and, uh, Mark and Mitch. And Mark was a great athlete when he was up there. Yeah. Matter of fact, I remember lots of brothers, being there, two and three brothers at a time. Hmm. Um, the Lewises, uh, Steve and Kenny and Mike Lewis. And um, well, I don't know. I, I can't think off the top of my head. Sure. But there were tons of them where there were families there. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, you don't think about it's not the first thing I think about when I think about the, like the, the sort of roll call of camp. But, you know, in those days, a camp, a full camp was 175 kids, maybe. Yeah, maybe up to uh, 190. And you talk about like, you know, here's three from this one, three from this one. Pretty soon the number of families involved shrinks down and maybe it's 100 families for that 175 kids or whatever it is. Yeah, I was trying to think of how many kids actually went through camp in the last, you know, 90 years. I don't know what that number is. Uh, I will tell you that the Camp Ojibwe History Project is getting very close. Uh, I've the new One of the new things I've been working on is a master directory of every camper ever and their camper years. Um, because we have the Warriors for everything except for the first 10 years. And the first 10 years, we're never really going to get, but we also know that it was pretty negligible. The first year was 17, the second year was 27, the third year was 36. The 36 had all of the 27 in it, <laughs> as well as all the 17. So we know that there weren't a ton of kids there. There were no plaques, there were no leagues. Uh, so it really was just, oh, there was also no Pearl, which was an, it's an important piece of this whole thing because she sort of ties it all together. She sort of organizes it all. I think that she influences Al more than we think, especially in the early parts. From 38 on, I have a, I'm working on a master directory. I, I basically have all the lists made, and now it's just going in and tracking year to year for each person. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable yeah. how many kids went through. You know, I, I look back at that time, and even during that time, realized how lucky we were to be able to, first of all, have a family that could afford it. Right. And then to go through something like that, I mean, you know, can't. Was it was really influential in my life? Uh, it really was. I mean, you know, from cleaning up to learning how to win and lose, and trying to be a good sport. Yeah. You know, when when you lost and when you won. Um, but I mean, even today, I can still do hospital corners. I still do the Ojibwe <laughs> fold. You know, and and my wife loves the fact that you know sure, I keep clean. <laughs> and, and a lot of that came from camp. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think camp gave you more tools than you think, like more than you think of right away. You think about sports, like you said, and you think about winning and losing, but all those other sort of things that kids had never done, you know, kids had never folded their pants, kids had never learned how to <laughs> put, you know, fold their clothes and put them away, exactly. And, right. of, and of course, the sheets. Well, I'll tell you what else, too. It influenced me as far as some of the music that I like, although I like lots of music. I really fell in love with Broadway music. And a lot of that is from camp. And some of it is from Elliot Friedman, who had that stuff at camp. Sure. Uh, but a lot of it is just, I, I love singing. I love being in the shows, you know. And, and today, I speak in front of a lot of people and do a lot of that type of thing. And I will tell you, it's because of my experience at camp that allowed me to do that. That does lead to my next question. And of course, you know, as much as we talk about the sports, there is always that other side of camp that is, to me, just as important, the very reason I'm there. And that's the stage. Uh how were your exploits on the Camp Ojibwe stage? <laughs> well, um, I think the most fun I ever had was during Collegiate Week in 1968. Mm. Um, Mark Pumpian was our coach. It was Air Force. And we put on a skit about a big blue frog. And the big blue frog was <laughs> in love with a princess or something. And, and how nobody would accept that because it's a big blue frog. And we sang and we, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> You know, and, and being in, in the, uh, in the uh, well, it was the minstrel show when I first right. started, and then the Jubilee, was, it was just fun. It was fun being up there, you know. I remember, I, th- I think it was Ellen, Ellen Schwartz, who, mm-hmm. Novak, who um, was in our skit in the first year, and we did something that today is not politically correct with... Um, uh, Mamma's little baby loves shortening, shortening, oh, you know, sure. loves shortening bread. We did that. And that wow. was, I, I'm sure I was seven years old at the yeah. time. And, and all the little kids were with her. She was terrific. Wow. Just terrific. Yeah, the minstrel show, uh, you're there through the crossover. Uh, so what's it like sort of when once it changes? Because the minstrel show was sort of set, I mean, you know, formulaically set up and, and you knew what to expect. But then when it went away, Camp had never kind of had an original show. Uh, so what was that transition like? What were the new shows like, I guess? Well, you know, it wasn't different as far as some of the, um, what can I say, the musical numbers that were put on. What was different was you didn't have the blackface on there. I see. And you didn't have, you know, there was like a, a chorus of, of black-faced kids. Gotcha. You know, and of course, when you did the hand routine, you know, you, you couldn't see faces and that's what they wanted. Right. But... But then it just went to, we're going to do numbers. We're going to do, gotcha. more, and again, more Broadway-type shows, uh, songs. Mm. So for me, it was wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, did you get any solos along the way? Did you get to do any, or, or sort of like showcase numbers where maybe it was you and... It, well, the one I remember was with Dave Matazar, or with, uh, I'm sorry, Barry Feldman. Mm. Um, and it was the anniversary show, the, the 40th year. And it was funny because he and I were up there and we're supposed to be looking at the crowd and then we're going to point back to the curtain, the red curtain. Okay. There was supposed to be this banner up there saying it's the 40th year. So here Barry and I are going, this year is our 40th year. And we look back and of course we're pointing and there's no sign. <laughs> so that was the way it goes. But classic. Barry and I did that. That's that's one I do remember. That's a classic Ojibwe moment. <laughs> Uh, Barry Feldman, he's there. Is he? Uh, are you guys close? Were you guys close then? Are you close now? Uh, you know, it's funny. When when I was a camper, Barry and Dave Matazar and that group and I really weren't that friendly. And as junior counselors, Dave Matazar and I were in Mike Bagan's cabin. Mm. And I think Mike handpicked us, to be honest with you. 
and we became good friends after that. And it's like everything changed. Yeah. You know, and who knows why? When you're a little, you know, when you're a kid and you're competing and I don't know, I, I have no idea. You know, if I had to do it over again, sure, I'd do things differently, but... <laughs> You know, well, I think it's interesting. Like, so I was never a camper. I've always been staff, but I've been there. This will be my my 18th summer. And so the guys, you know, you're close to certain people when you get there and people go stop coming or, or, you know, people switch over. Or there are guys who you've been there together all along and and six years in suddenly you share a moment and become the best of friends and then you're friends forever. And it's just sort of interesting to see how the dynamics of how all that works. Well, I have been going up to camp with the old timers. I was I was actually in. I'm going to say close to the original time that they started. Matter of fact, I'll show you some pictures that I do have. Nice. But uh, then I stopped when I moved to California. So I went up until about 1995. Okay. And then stopped. And then this year, this past summer, went back again. So I've maintained friendships with, you know, with all those guys, with Barry Feldman and Ronnie Brody and George and Bernie Kerman and, yeah. you know, Wolanka and the whole bit. And you got to come up this summer. And I got I came up this summer. It was fantastic. You know, after not being there for so long. The weather, not so great. <laughs> but this is the first year I can remember not getting bit by a mosquito. Well, that, there you go. That was the payoff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, year, this past year was a tough one with the weather, for sure. But right. uh, that's okay. You talked about being a junior counselor. So talk to me a little bit about once you made that transition from camper to counselor. What was that like? Uh, it was a little hard, to be honest with you. You know, because you're still a kid. And you want to play everything. And at the time, they made it so that the junior counselors were not playing in Watermelon. And oh. prior to that, they were. Oh, so you're there right when it kind of switches over. Correct. So it was a little bit different. Um, <laughs> the funny story, though, and probably an embarrassing one for me, but I'll tell it anyway. <laughs> um, Mickey Heyman was a, and I think this was my second year as a junior counselor. Mickey Heyman was the, I think, the captain and first pick of his team. Uh, in Watermelon League, and he got injured. So they were looking for a junior counselor to take his place. And, of course, they didn't want the best one. They didn't want the worst one either, so they chose me. Okay. And I couldn't, I can't tell you how badly I played. You know, <laughs> if I could make an error, I made it. Elliot calls me out on strikes. I mean, on a ball, by the way, Elliot, it was clearly over my head. Uh, anything that could have gone wrong went wrong. I felt pretty yeah. bad for Mickey. Uh, what was it like though on the other side that like taking care of a cabin of kids like what from that aspect I loved it and it's it's you know the the older I got it seemed like the less mature I became so I had more fun <laughs> and I was I played with the kids you know I mean just in a good way <laughs> um, and so that was great I had no issue with that um, yeah. I asked I asked Mickey at the time and I don't remember I was still around but I remember Mickey asking him if I could be with the older kids mm. and they acceded to my wishes and and that made it nice yeah you know i had a great game matter of fact i'll be honest with you i had one of the most fun times the cabin i had had um let's see marty block and larry lubin and steve mendez and uh, gosh i'm forgetting everybody but that group of kids was uh oh billy kramer mm. we had more fun that year and I, I almost than I had as a camper. Wow. It was a great, great year. <laughs> and, and, and also one of my worst picks ever, um, and it's not because he wasn't good, but in basketball. I had the first first pick, oh. all right? And there's Larry Lubin sitting out there. I didn't realize how good Larry Lubin really was. <laughs> Why, I don't know. So I said, okay, I'm going to pick the tallest kid. 
and I pick Craig Boyer, who's a good kid and sure. a pretty good basketball player, <laughs> but he wasn't Larry. And I'm thinking, you know, everyone else, of course, is laughing at me. Right. And, of course, Larry won, and, and he should. And we had fun, though. I mean, you know, yeah. Craig did a good job. <laughs> Well, you talked about a few things that you won or lost along the way. Uh, we should talk about, of course, the greatest sporting event in history, uh, the Collegiate Week of Camp Ojibwa. How were your Collegiate Week years? Uh, I was. I loved them. I mean, for someone who's competitive, there is nothing better. Nothing better. Even to this day, there's nothing better. Um, but I was. I was fortunate. I won twice. Um, both times on Air Force, once in 1964 and once in 70 as the assistant coach with oh, uh, Bobby nice. Kaufman. Very nice. Although I still think, Bob, that I was really the coach. <laughs> <laughs> um, and came in second, I think twice, and third once. Uh, but the year I, I was in third was my last year as a camper. Ah. And that was a heartbreak. Again, Mark Pumpian was the coach. And Rory Mink was our was our assistant coach, although the, the, the kind of joke was, where's Rory? Because we don't ever remember seeing him, but I'm sure he was there and probably did a lot. But uh, we were in the race for second place. Elliot had chosen Mike Lewis as his first pick, and they were running away with everything. It wasn't close. They were going to win. So the race was for second place. Gotcha. And I remember we were, I think it was Yale, and I think Steve Rosen and Mickey Heyman, I think, were the around there, if I, my memory serves me right. Anyway... It's coming down to the end, and they used to take points off of your team if your cabins were not clean, and they could pinpoint it to a certain individual. Oh, sure. But we lost two points because of that. Oh. We also, also, I got sick during that particular um, summer, and I missed the football game that we lost. And then the best story of that year was, I think, was during the swim meet. We had good swimmers. I could swim. Uh, Patter could swim. Mickey Goldfine and Robbie Fain, and they all could swim. So we thought, we're going to win this, this, we're going to do well in the swim meet. Well, here we are in the, do they still do the swim meet? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's four people, all right? So so Robbie Fain and I were on one side, and Mickey Goldfine and um, Patter. And, and Patter were on the other side, right. all right? So I'm the anchor, so Robbie Fain's number two. So I think it was Mickey Goldfine comes over and I told Robbie Fain, as soon as he touches, dive in and go. All right? So Patter or Goldfine gets there, and he touches the pier. And Robbie Fain has his hand out, and he's waiting for him to touch his hand. And I'm saying, go. And he's, and he's waiting and waiting. And finally, um, I finally pushed him in the water. And Marty Salzman is sitting over on the diving board watching me, and he just kind of smirked. And unfortunately, we lost the relay by a little bit. So oh. all that together, we ended up losing the week by or the second place by two points. Oh, it was, and it's brutal. my last year as a camper. So, brutal. But it, but it was so much fun. It really was. I mean, when you look back on it, it was great. Yeah. You know. Did you get to? Were you there to be a head coach? I was a head coach my final year, and said, and you know what? I hardly remember that year. To be honest with you, uh, we I think we came in fifth place. Uh, but I'll tell you, I, re I remember something when I was maybe in cabin two or four, so I was either seven or eight years old, and I was on, I think it was Army, and Jim Schwartz was the head coach, and I'm a little kid, so the, the varsity is playing football, and we're at the rifle range, I think is what it was, okay. and I'm a little kid, and, and they don't have a rifle range anymore, but we did back then, Right. and so I'm the last person to shoot, I was the youngest kid on the team, I guess, and I had to hit the target is all I had to do, I think, and if I did, we win. 
So the first bullet goes, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't close. Anyway, finally, I hit the target, and they come back with the, you know, with the target and, and say, oh, yeah, you hit it. Matter of fact, you hit it three times. Jimmy Schwartz picks me up, and he's a big guy, and I'm this little guy. He picks me up and carries me out of the rifle range, hits his head on the, on the top of the range, almost knocks himself out, but he's so happy, <laughs> you know, putting his arm around me. It was great. And that's really my first remembrance of Collegiate Week. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and then, of course, Steve Katz doing the, uh, the obstacle course by himself. <laughs> so you came back. You went to camp 10 years. What was the thing that brought you back? What was the thing that kept bringing you back? Probably the friends. Hmm. You know, um, you know it, it was fun because I would go back home and I'd be with my close friends who were in Lincolnwood and, and that area. But at camp, I was with my friends from... Highland Park, from Deerfield, from the South Side, some from far away as Florida, Richie Levinson, I remember, and some other people who came from Florida. I mean, it was just, it was fun. And it's like going that first day of school. Mm. You know, you come back to school and you're so happy to see everybody. The difference is, is that at camp, you're still happy to see them after the second and third day. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So I think really that was the reason. And I, and I really loved the competition. I really did. You know, mm. uh, you know, again, when you look back on it, you know, you wish you had done some things differently. Sure. But oh, it was great. But just, yeah, because thinking about it, you're talking about you joining the the boys of summer, the, the old timers and coming back. Because, you know, you come back year after year as a camper and a counselor. But then you get out and you go, you know what? I still need more. So you, you hop in with this group of guys and you just come up because you can't get enough. I love that idea. <laughs> well, and, it's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm going to be turning 65 here in about a week, so... Uh, thank all of you who are younger than that for uh, paying for my Social Security and Medicare. <laughs> but um, I went up there this year, and, you know, it's during Collegiate Week now that we're going up. But but during the breaks, there were some kids playing basketball. So I go over there, you know, and I'm trying to, to help one of the little kids out. He's probably about 10 years old. Mm. And I say, okay, go ahead, and you try to get by me. I'm really going to play defense against you and, you know, let him go a little bit. But he says, you ought to play against this other kid. And I, I wish I could remember his name right now, but he was 12 years old. And a really good athlete. Um, anyway, so we're, we're going, and, and I said, okay, try to get by me. Okay, so he can't really get by me. So the next thing he does is he's at the three-point line. He's 12 years old. He's at the three-point line. He fakes going into the basket. I take a step back. He takes a step back and does a, a jump shot going backwards. Swish. <laughs> So I figured, well, at least I can still guard a 10-year-old, maybe not a 12-year-old. Uh, we call that the Steph Curry effect, by the way. I can't. This, this new step-back three. It was unbelievable. Matter of fact, I watched the same kid. I wish I could remember his name, who was fast, and he won the, the uh, relay race. And uh, I think he was uh, in the midgets or something. I don't yeah. remember. What else? What, what, other, what else do you have on your list? So we're playing the, the Ojibwa team, and I want to say we were all around, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, maybe 15 to 16 years old, was playing against the Eagle River Town team. Oh. So we're out there playing, and Mike Zaslowski is pitching, and he's doing a really good job. And at a later inning, um, he was rounding second or third base, and somebody got a hit. He was on base and slid into home, and the umpire called him out. And Zaz looks at the guy and says, Jesus Christ, I was safe. And the umpire looks at him and he says, you are out of the game. <laughs> and he goes, for what? He says, for swearing. Now, Gary Greenberg was our <laughs> was our coach. And so he had to pull the guy aside a little bit and say, well, you know, in, in, in our neck of the woods, that's really not swearing. 
So finally, they came to an agreement. Zaz was kicked out for one inning, but meanwhile, we didn't have a pitcher. Mm. So finally, I think I think Mark Mursky pitched for the one inning. We ended up beating him, but it was really funny because, you know, here here we were, a bunch of Jewish kids, <laughs> and saying, Jesus Christ, he gets kicked out of the game. That's fantastic. Oh, gosh, there's so many things. Um, I remember... <laughs> I remember one time, this is kind of unusual, two, two things that have to do with boxing. Um, one time when I was around cabin seven, so two, four, five, seven, I was, I was my 63, I think it was. There was a fellow in the, in the cabin, his name is Freddie Goshen from, I think he was from Indiana, but anyway. So Fred Goshen and I were kind of at odds and we're fighting all the time. And finally, Al said, if you guys are going to fight, we're going to set up a ring. So what he did was on the campus diamond, he sets up the benches in a square, he puts the gloves on us and says, okay, guys, go at it. And of course, we were fighting each other, but by the end of it, we were so exhausted, we were glad for it just to be over. <laughs> the other boxing story is Mark Bursky and I, and this was probably when we were junior counselors, went to Steve Katz, who I think was an AAU Silver Gloves champion. Mm-hmm. If I'm So he said, we really want to learn how to box. And, and, and we were you know trying to get in shape for basketball and all that kind of stuff. So... Steve says, okay, you know, I'm, I'll help you guys out. So he teaches us a few things. And now we're not wearing headgear or anything else. It's just gloves. So I want to say after maybe the second or third time, he says, okay, I want you guys to do a, a three-minute round. So we said, sure. So we kind of said to each other, you know, we won't really hit each other. Well, we got in there, and we're kind of playing around. And Kat said, if you guys don't start hitting each other, you're going to have to fight me. At which point, Mursk hits me hard in the face. I said, geez, this hurts, you know? So, and after about three minutes, we were both exhausted and both looked at each other and said, this is the dumbest sport ever. We're done. <laughs> I mean, there's so many memories there. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid. I, I, I don't know if you know, well, you know Neil Mall. I don't mm-hmm. know if you knew, do you know Jay? I met Jay uh, the fir- on my first trip out. Uh, I've interviewed him briefly. It never went up because we did it sitting outside of a cafe and the audio was just totally unusable. All right. Unusable. But I do, yeah. Well, whenever Jay would see me as a little kid, and he's he's got to be, what, 10 years older than me, whatever, he would pinch my cheek, you know, because I guess I had these big cheeks, and he would pinch my cheek and say, how you doing, Stevie? How You know, that was when I was seven or eight years old. Now... In about 1993, I am now 42 years, 41 years old. I'm at camp with the old timers, and Jay Maul is there. He looks at me, and the first thing he does is he pinches my cheek. Hi, Stevie Wolf, how you doing? First thing. That's fantastic. It's unbelievable. (laughs) And I also remember when uh, Sid Harris was our counselor in cabin 13, and Sid was a great guy. Really had a lot of fun with him, but I remember this was during the Vietnam War time, Mm. and during the summer, he got his draft notice, and I just remember tears just, you know, rolling down his face, and I remember all of us wishing him goodbye in the mess hall, and it was, it was sad, you know, on the other hand, I'm I'm assuming he made it through, I haven't heard from Sid or heard about him in a long time, but I think he's still... Yeah, so he left... But he left during camp. He left during camp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they they, they didn't they didn't give him any dispensation for camp, so yeah. so he had to go. That period. That's so fascinating to me that the I've talked about it with a couple of guys who were either called up or re, or remember like you do being there as a kid and, and someone getting called, um, and just sort of the, I guess the global education that that suddenly puts on, 
you know, a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. Right. Because suddenly there's a whole lot of questions and the counselors are 16, 17, 18-year-old kids trying to answer their questions the best they can about right. what this is and what it means and why he has to do it. And well, I think I was about 14 <clears throat> or 15 at the time, but still, it, it, it hits you. And then a few years later, they had the, uh, the lottery mm. when, when I was eligible and the first year when I wasn't eligible, my, my birth date came up like 315. I figured, oh boy, I'm in trouble because next year is coming up number one. But the next year it came up like 340. So, oh, wow. you know, I didn't have to go. I would have gone if I had to, but sure. I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to. Yeah. Was, that was a tough time. As a matter of fact, camp was, uh, well, school and camp were kind of divided. Camp, not as much as school, I guess. But during that time, there was so much angst you know, and, and, and kids were starting to get into drugs, and it, it changed a lot of things, you know. But going back to what you were saying about how when you're a kid you have questions, and kind of going back to your question about about the uh, minstrel show versus the Jubilee, mm-hmm. I didn't understand at the time why they stopped doing the minstrel show. You know, I mean, I was, oh, sure. what, nine years old, eight right. years old. I, I didn't understand it. All I knew is that, is that it stopped. And I'll tell you, you know, during that same period of time, I think it was 1964 was the first year we took the buses up mm. to camp. And I seem to remember that was also a year that tornadoes hit the camp. Maybe it was 63. Oh, right. And I remember that really doing some devastation. But more important than that, I think it was 64 was a really, really bad year at camp. Mm. Um, a couple of counselors got fired, which is almost unheard of. Um, and it was just a bad year. Mm. And the next year... There was only, you know, usually there's 190 kids. I'm going to say there was only about 140 kids in camp that next year. I think it was 65. And it's interesting because Bernie Kerman was there that year. And he was in cabin 12 as the counselor. And Mike Martyr was our counselor in cabin 11. And I'm telling you that those two guys, especially Bernie, almost single or dual-handedly brought that camp back to life. Hmm. Bernie with his with his walking stick. I don't know if you've heard the story with his walking stick. Well, and I know about his speed walk. I know that he's an Olympic level speed walker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and but <clears throat> those guys made camp fun again. Mm. And the the following year, uh, and 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 cabins eleven and twelve were really competitive, and it was really a lot of fun. But the following year, I think was sixty six. They were back up there again. Gotcha. But boy, sixty four was a really tough year. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's fascinating when, you know, we talk so much about camp as this sort of other culture, you know, almost a, almost its own counterculture, that when you come into camp, it's you're at camp, and it has nothing to do with what's outside the gates, and we we protect that. But there are times when the world comes in, and you can't avoid that. And well, speaking of the world coming in, 1969, when the Cubbies were doing so well, and I was one of those kids who was fascinated with sports. I eventually became a, a sports journalist for a few years, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of those kids who was listening to the radio behind cabin 12 and there used to be a, a telephone pole with a wire there, ah. you know, and I'd listen to the Cubs games. Well, as you probably know the story about Leo DeRocher coming in, most kids know, so I'm not going to reiterate that, but I will tell you that when he came into cabin 13, we, it was the biggest thrill that you can <laughs> ever imagine, you know, and him telling stories to us and what is very personable guy. You know, yeah, that was really a lot of fun. I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be a kid and be such a Cub fan and just, I mean, because to, to the kids, I'm sure they had no idea. 
Do you, I mean, maybe they thought it was coming, maybe because the uh, the son-in-law or whatever was there. So maybe they thought in their wildest dreams, maybe he'll come here, but just all of a sudden it's happening right in front of you. Holy all all I know is there were 190 kids and however many staff people watching his car coming up the road, all yelling, Cubbies, Cubbies, Cubbies. I mean, 210 people, however many it was. It was just amazing. <laughs> you had to be there. I have an amazing picture uh, from Billy Schwartz of that sign in Eagle River at the stoplight where there's the sign that advertises the stuff and it says, like, thanks for coming, Leo, or something like that. Right. It's just awesome. Right. That was that was fun. Very cool. Um, you know, and Al was one of those guys who was extremely personable also. About the only time I can remember him speechless. And this is not a great story for those of us at camp, but we were in town, and I want to say... Cabin's 13, maybe 12, I don't remember. There was a whole bunch of us in town. And we're on the way back. And one of the guys decides that he's going to urinate off the side of the red truck. Oh, boy. Yes. So <laughs> somebody who is behind in the car drives up and obviously t- looks at the name on the truck and apparently called camp. Mm-hmm. And that night, Al comes into cabin. It was cabin 13. Al comes into our cabin. And I'm telling you, I've never seen him speechless before. He said, I just want to know who did this. And it was about the only question that I can remember him asking. Wow. And person fessed up, and Alec just, he was beside himself. It's about the only time I've ever seen him speechless. Wow. So, Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I never even considered that. I mean, all those trips to town with the kids in the truck. Exactly. Of course, someone's going to pull that stunt. Oh. Right. Course, I also, only once. <laughs> I also remember when I was a junior counselor, or I was a uh, cabin 13, I was a potential. Mm-hmm. So as a potential, you get one night out. Well, there so happened to have been a babysitter <laughs> at camp. Sure. Um, who I might have seen once or twice. <laughs> and so she, we made arrangements that I was going to see her, and we t- and she owned, her family owned the marina. You know, it was the oh. Tomlinson Marina. Okay. All right. So Julie says to me, he says, oh, come on, you'll go on the boat with me. So Steve Lewis was our counselor. And Steve said when he dropped all of us off at the bowling alley, which I don't think is there anymore. Oh, no. Well, oh, we the, have one. Oh, you're, it was underneath, right? Yes. That one is not there anymore. All right. He said, you must be back by, I think it was 10 or 1030. So I go off and we're in this boat and the boat breaks down. <laughs> so here we are out in the middle of nowhere and and there's no way to quickly get back sure so finally i get back it was around midnight and steve was about ready to kill me and of course nobody believes that it really broke down and if it did they said yeah you guys planned it but anyway <laughs> that's what happened nice. so talking about all these stories and thinking back about the whole thing in the big picture how would you say that camp ojibwe affected your life it, it just, it affected it in so many ways. Um, you know, how I view other people changed. You know, I look, most everybody who went to that camp were spoiled rich kids, okay? It, we were, you know, some more than others and probably me more than, than most. And you learned to live with other people. You know, you learned how to get along and how to how to win gracefully and how to lose gracefully. And maybe it didn't take right then, but as time went on, see all those lessons that you learned from camp, you know, they all came together. 
And I'd like to think that I'm a decent person a lot because of my camp experience. Hmm. So. I think that's a pretty good, I think that's a pretty good one. So the last question I always ask everyone is, tell me one more great camp story. All right. I don't know if you ever heard this story. You might have. But one of the funniest stories I heard was there was a camper and then a junior counselor, and I think a counselor, Myron Auerbach. And Myron was a nice guy. I, I got along with him fine and everything else. Well, Myron had a mustache. Well, some of the kids thought it might be a fun idea to shave off half of his mustache oh, no. <laughs> while he was sleeping. <laughs> so they did that, and he gets up the next morning, of course, realizes what happened, and goes up to either Mickey or Denny, I don't remember who, I think it was Mickey, and he says, Mickey, do you know what those guys just did to me? <laughs> and of course, Mickey's looking at him, you know, with half a mustache, and I think he was trying not to burst out laughing. Sure. But uh, we all kind of got a kick, we get a kick out of it now. I'm not sure back then it was so funny. Yeah. I don't know, did you ever hear that story before? I have not. That's a... It's a classic. And there, there's more. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Sure. Um, I don't know if you remember Heron Hound. Do they still have the Heron Hound? We do occasionally still do Heron Hound. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember when Sandy Maravitz was um, disguised as a janitor, as a custodian, sitting at the point on the bench. And nobody knew that it was him. And we all walked by and we thought it was a custodian. So nobody ever, ever got him. And the other one, of course, and you must have heard this story about Steve Katz climbing the tree. Certainly. Okay, you've heard that a million times and Chip <laughs> Kobe almost getting kicked off. Um, I like to think it wasn't really as dangerous as it sounds, but I'm sure it was. <laughs> I'm sure it those was. trees are pretty tall. <laughs> Katz told me that the secret to that move is you have to climb a tree that's got another tree of the same height close to it. So that you can, once you do whatever you're going to do, with you can jump across if you have to to get away by climbing down the other tree. Well. I'm like Steve Woods. Well, yeah, I know. Well, apparently Chip Kobe could climb trees, too, because he was going to get them. Yeah, apparently so. He was going to get them. I, I would say, you know, I didn't really like being an official. Mm. I really didn't. Um, but I did it. And uh, I was assigned to the Watermelon League. I think it was the championship game. And... Marty Block was on one team, and I want to say Mike Rosen. I'm trying to remember all the people who were there. But at any rate, I'm, I'm umpiring first base. Marty Block is the first base coach. Okay. All right? I think it was Mike Rosen was up, and, he, and there's guys on base. I want to say there was either two or three guys on base. Either the base is loaded or two people on base. And he hits what looks like a home run. Well, he rounds first base, and he comes nowhere near to touching the bag. And I kind of glanced over at Marty Block, who was the first base coach, and didn't say a word. He looked at me, didn't say anything. So he gets all around. They're all excited. They get it back in the pitcher's hand, and they appeal to first base, and I call him out. And, of course, the other team was beside themselves, and I just looked, and I said, ask Marty. <laughs> <laughs> so Being an official is tough. I mean, oh, just yelled the first... When I first got there, I was a, a theater guy. I, that's what I was brought in for. But they, there wasn't really enough of that, so they had to find other stuff for me to do. So they decided we're going to try some officiating, and they put me on peach basketball. And <laughs> I did the game, and the game was over, 
And I walked into the office and I said, I will never do that again. If you need me to do that again, I will drive home. <laughs> well, and, and basketball is the hardest sport to officiate. It goes so fast. Right. You know, and those peach kids, I mean, they're, they're breaking every rule every second, and the coaches are screaming about both, and it's just like, oh, my <laughs> God, you guys. Well, one great thing about Ojibwa is that it had taught me a sport that nobody knew, and that was box hockey. Oh, sure. Okay, so I want to put a box hockey court, or whatever it is, in my backyard. So it's going to happen <laughs> at some point in time. But it's funny because when I tell people here in, in, in San Diego area, about box hockey, they look at me like, you know, I've got horns coming out of my head. <laughs> but uh, that was fun. And unfortunately, as, as an old-timer, I tried playing hockey again right after the Collegiate Week kids were playing, mm. and we were definitely in slow motion. <laughs> sure, so, of course. age catches up to you. <laughs> but I loved it. Uh, box hockey was so much fun, and, you know, we, we still try to play it today. Nice. You know? Yeah, as long as you don't try to beat a 14-year-old, uh, you'll be in good shape. <laughs> well, I was on the team that I think it was 92 when we came back, the old-timers, mm. and we won the tug-of-war. Oh, sure. But we've lost, you know, when Dizzy died, and I forgot who the other guy was, Be- Began, mm. uh, Jerry Began. They were both our big anchors. Yes. Well, they both died. And, of course, we got older, and those <laughs> kids were still 14, and we, we couldn't beat them, but... Yeah. It was fun. Well, funny story about Denny, too. Uh, you know, Denny started about, I think, about a year before I did. And he was a tough guy. You know, he really was. Um, I, you know, and he, he was kind of short. And I, I think, in a lot of ways, Denny wanted to prove to everybody that he was tough. Mm. But I remember we, on a trip day, we're supposed to go out in the rowboats. And, I mean, the clouds could not be blacker. <laughs> All right. And I'm looking at Denny, you know, saying, are you really going to make us go out in this? He said, oh, yeah, don't worry. It's not going to rain. And I looked at him. I said, it's going to it's going to lightning. And th- get out there, <laughs> you know. So we got out. And about five minutes later, of course, it started raining. We got soaked and came back in. <laughs> but that was Denny. I was going to ask. I would say with you coinciding with the beginning of Denny, if you got some of that early, especially early years as a program director. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Denny, again, Denny was tough. He, he, he was not, you know, um, how do I put it, the most gentle people. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> if, he, if he liked you, if you were really good at Denny would do anything for you. And fortunately, he liked me, although I wasn't the, the top athletes. But, but he, um, he mellowed as time went on. I mean, to see him today, in some respects, is not the same. But, but it was funny because when we had the Ojibwe reunion here back in, uh, what was it, April or May? Yeah. You know, and, and and Denny trying to quiet the crowd and telling everybody that they were being rude. I mean, that was quintessential <laughs> Denny Rosen. Mm-hmm. So, but, nice. uh, yeah, but he, he mellowed. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and they instituted a lot of things that were happening in school, too. Right. You know, it, it, you know the things that we did in the old days, you don't do anymore. Either parents don't let you or just the world has changed. Exactly. So, and I think camp had to change with it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think that was the biggest change, going from an eight-week camp to four-week sessions, um, you know, because when you're at eight weeks, I mean, it's been, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kid, that's a long time. And today, I don't think most parents still want their kids to go that early for that long. Right. There's no question. And, and you know, for a long time, the, the old-timers say, oh, it's not the same camp and all that, and they're not as competitive. But I have to tell you that being up there during Ojibwa or during uh, the Collegiate Week at Ojibwa, they were just as competitive as we were. Yeah. You know, I don't think they're quite as good athletically. I think we had more athletes back then. I really yeah. do. Um, not to say that these kids aren't good athletes. Right. But some of the kids we had back in, in my era and, and before were just 
outstanding. I mean, as right. good as you can get. So. And I know there's the old, well, my generation were the best. And and we, my age group was right in the kind of the middle of that where it started to become where the coaches were telling you, you had to go to the specialized camps if you wanted to play. Yeah. Matter of fact, I, I seem to remember that Mark Mursky, you know, who was a very good basketball player, went on to play college ball. Um, you know, he basically said, hey, I'm going to camp. I'm not going to the specialty camp, which I thought was great. And, of course, we had a great time. So. <laughs> right, right. And ultimately, the coaches, ultimately, the, the camper learns that if you're good, I mean, if you're real good, the coach is going to play you. Exactly. Like, you know. <laughs> but, but they seem to have more control these days than they did. But, but a lot of the things that were on, happening in school are now happening at camp. Yeah. And I suppose it's, it's for the best. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately those changes had to be made for, for camp to continue to exist. But I think mostly it's positive. Right. I think most of them are positive and constructive, and, you know, and the but rest is the way I, of the world. I still like that it's competitive, though. The world is competitive. You know, you asked me about, about how it set you up for life. I mean, when I got through with my camp experience and got into the real world, it was competitive as heck. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was prepared for that. And it's funny because in my business, I, I'm a financial advisor. In my business, it's so competitive. It's cutthroat. Mm. And I knew that I could succeed where others wouldn't because I knew I could compete. And I knew I would outwork them. You know, So I, that's another way that camp really helped. And I hear so many people say, oh, we don't like the competition. And you know, everybody gets a trophy and a plaque. And you, know, you can't market kids' grades bad and all that. I, that's not that's not helping kids. Right. It's not helping. So so I'm glad to see that there was still a lot of competitiveness. Yeah, at camp. absolutely, absolutely. We <laughs> that's one piece that I don't think will ever change. That's part of the spirit of Ojibwe. For it sure. is, and I love the. Uh, I, I got to tour maybe prematurely your um, your camp project. Yes, history the, the museum. Yes, it's pretty cool to to sit and look at all the pictures and people. And I'm trying to pick myself out, trying to remember was that me or is that somebody else. <laughs> You know, yeah, we hope everyone comes and does that. That's what it's about. And uh, there'll be more stuff to it. I mean, you really saw you saw the the sort of skeleton of it all. Um, but by next summer, there'll be a lot more to do, to see, to interact with, we hope. Well, this has been amazing. Uh, did we forget anything? Oh, I know there's a million more things, but you know, I'm bored now, so you know, go on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And thank you. this this has been fantastic. Awesome. Okay, that is it. Another one in the books, Steve Wolf. Uh, some great stories in there. Steve and I had an awesome time, obviously. I love that story about playing the, the people in town and the Jesus Christ. That's very funny. <laughs> we actually uh, got all the way through the interview, and he was like, oh, I, I forgot. I got to tell you this story. And so we picked that up a little bit later. And I was like, this is a keeper. We got to find a place for this. Okay, as always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampOjibwaHistory.org, or just swing by the website, check things out. I've already told you all the stuff that's going on over there. But I will tell you, in the next few weeks, we're going to be recording a lot more new podcasts. So if you have not been on the podcast, or if you know someone who would be an excellent candidate that I have not yet interviewed, drop me a line. Let me know. Uh, I'm dying to get in touch with people. Uh, The more, the merrier. I think the more stories we have, the better the end will be. As for me, it's a little chilly outside, but I'm going to put on a couple extra layers and head outside for a cigar.